A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. There's this thing that happens in the first episode of the TV show Watchmen, which I finally saw last month. I'm behind. A woman is driving with her son on a sunny day, and suddenly the sky darkens and squids drop from the sky, like a hailstorm or something, but they're little, you know, squids. Each one, I don't know, the length of your finger. Cars on the road pull over and wait. Squids land on them and on the ground, making the soggy layer of squid on the road. And then, soon enough, again, like a hailstorm, it stops. Sun comes back up. Everybody starts their car again, heads to wherever they're heading, just like the most normal thing in the world. No big deal, just another squid drop. And when I saw that, I felt like that is exactly how things happen. Like, that's how things feel. That's what everything feels like right now. Inconceivable stuff goes down all the time these days. And it's like, you can get used to anything. You know what I mean? Every few days, more Americans died from COVID than died in 9-11. Wildfires are raging and continue to just rage. The president won't disavow white supremacists in a televised debate. Like, I'm used to all that. Like, that's just daily life, you know? Or there's this example of you can get used to anything. Jay was having a normal stressful day for 2020, meaning he does his job from his apartment on a computer at his kitchen table on Zoom. But he's also, you know, got to deal with his children during the workday. So a couple weeks ago, he's a college professor and he's preparing a lecture for a class and he's anxious about that and he wants it to be good. And then at three o'clock, he has to go run, get his kids and bring them home. And he and his kids get back to their building at 3.20. And he's trying to move quickly because his class starts at 3.30. And he and his two kids get on the elevator to head up to their apartment. And then all of a sudden, I feel the elevator start to drop. It's like a you know half-second feeling, like when you're in a, a roller coaster. And, and thankfully, it stops. How and far do you I, guys drop? Um, I don't know, just probably a couple stories. You dropped a few stories? Yeah, and I look, and it's stuck at the third floor. They push a button to call for help, and they're told somebody's going to be there to fix things, but it's going to take a little while. And they wait. And my kids are starting to bicker with one another, and my daughter starts getting upset. She's eight years old. And part of what's happening, Jay says, is that her big brother, who is 10 years old, has actually been stuck in an elevator once before when he was little. So he's being all, what's the big deal? Um, He was not rattled at all. And in fact, she starts to get upset. He starts to tell her that she's overreacting, and that makes her more upset. And so I had to, like, calm her down and and tell him to stop teasing her and, and... Then we took a couple selfies and we, you know, I tried to like make it like a fun thing we're all going to remember and look back on and laugh on. And so that kind of changed the mood in the elevator a little bit, at least briefly. So kids momentarily okay. Jay gets back to the other urgent matter that's on his mind, his class. It's over 300 students, this big intro psychology class, which still has not started. There's still just enough time for him to quickly tap out a message on his phone Dear class, I am currently trapped in an elevator in my apartment building, so I'll join the Zoom call and start teaching once I'm safely out of here. Push send, message goes out, and then nothing, right? They just stay put. And Jay starts to worry about his students, who are waiting for him on that Zoom call. Ten minutes pass, 20, and half an hour in, he decides he's going to try to teach the class on his phone from the elevator, which takes a little, like, 
technical wrangling. He has to download Zoom to his phone with barely one bar of service, blah, blah, blah. Okay, this part is boring. But after a while, okay, no video, voice only, he's in. And I joined the Zoom class, and I'm trying to talk to them, and I can hear their voices. And the students are all chit-chatting with themselves. And I can hear them kind of speculating about what might be happening to me, and they're laughing. And I'm trying to get their attention, and they're all talking. And they couldn't hear me. And so I'm shouting at this point. It's me, it's Jay, I'm here. Hi guys. (laughs) So in the elevator, what's happening is you're a grown man shouting into his phone. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. And eventually I can hear some of them say, hey, wait, I think I hear our professor. I think he's back. He has like a moment of panic, like what am I going to say? And then he launches in with no notes, none of his slides. He gives the lecture that he'd planned. Uh, And I can't see them and they can't see me. Um, but uh, it was working. It was it was all kind of coming back to me, and I was able to deliver it, and, and I had their attention. So it starts to seem normal. Yeah, it starts to seem normal. Yeah, eventually I had adapted. My kids are being quiet. They're listening. Can I ask you, do you remember how long it took? Like, how many minutes did it take before this started to seem normal? Um, I would say about four or five minutes. Four or five minutes. We are very adaptable creatures. Soon enough, the elevator jolts and starts to move again. Jay gets back to his apartment, sits down at the kitchen table, logs onto Zoom, and teaches a couple hundred kids from his kitchen, which, of course, is also totally weird, but after months of doing that, it feels totally normal. Hey, did you consider not doing the class? Did you consider canceling? It's funny because at that night, I, when I told my partner about this, she's like, why don't you just cancel? And she's a professor, But it's one of those things where it didn't cross my mind when I was in the situation. My mind early in that day had been focused on like being able to navigate this complex situation that was going to be stressful, you know, getting my kids and getting home and then getting the lecture ready, which I'd been prepping all day. And so that had determined each little step I made. And I never really stopped to think that I just shouldn't do it. That's all of us right now. Our lives this year are so strange, and we just do the next task, and the next one after that, and the next one after that, and we do not think about how weird things have gotten. Each little step naturally led to the next step, and then it wasn't until I left the situation hours later I was, like, looking at it and realizing how absurd it was. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, people trapped in small spaces, stuck in a situation, and coping because they have no choice. Jay, I think it's pretty clear, was not too bothered by a short time in the elevator. But in our other stories today, it is people who are stuck in a small space for way longer. In the first half of our program, we have a story where things get pretty dire. And in the second half, it's not nearly so difficult. It's musicians who are confined to a tiny space for years, an uncomfortably tiny space. And can I say, things get pretty weird there, too. Stay with us. Taquan, the people up the stairs. So we start today with a couple who've been penned into a small space for months now, hiding in an attic because their lives are on the line, surrounded by musty furniture and stacks of old paintings that are collecting dust. Kevin Seif talked to them about the truly jaw-dropping story of how they got there. The attic has creaky wood floors and one small window, but they try not to go close to it. They don't want to be seen. The ceilings are low, Moises, who's 6'1", has to crouch, but Jessica is fine. They spend their time obsessing over not being heard. They try not to talk above a whisper, 
or walk on the creaking floorboards. Even sleeping is stressful. When we sleep, Moises snores, and it scares me. And sometimes I wake him up in the night when I hear that he's snoring. I say, Moises, try not to snore. But I don't think it's something that is under his control, but it still bothers me because it's something that I don't think he should do. Do you have to worry about every noise that you guys make? Yeah, we have to be like ghosts in this house. How Moises and Jessica ended up in this attic, it goes back to how they met. It was 2016 on an anti-government WhatsApp group. They were both activists against the regime of Daniel Ortega, who has ruled Nicaragua on and off for 40 years. Then they started seeing each other at protests and meetings. Jessica saw the nerdy guy, unafraid to go on national television, wearing a mask with the president's face on it, and an X over the mouth, demanding freedom of expression. Moises saw the woman with the big brown eyes, often the last person to back down when the police showed up. At one protest, when 200 police closed in on a group of maybe 20 protesters, Moises looked for a place to run. But then he saw Jessica and another woman walk right up to the armed officers and start yelling in their faces. So I kind of got brave also. I went to the front line. stand with them shoulder to shoulder doing the same thing. It's kind of like a crazy moment to start a relationship with someone. Like you're in the middle of basically like a firing line with this girl that you just started dating. Yeah. Uh, what I thought is that if they're going to kill me, I'm going to die happy right now at least. <laughs> they got married and Moises adopted Jessica's daughter, Camila. He got a job at a Sprint call center talking to people from the States all day. Jessica worked for a company that made solar panels. But still, their relationship was built around their activism. One parent picked up Camila at school while the other organized a rally or held a press conference. At home, near the little girl's pile of toys, they kept masks for tear gas. But the government's response got harsher. The regime began kidnapping its opponents. Moises was grabbed by four or five men in unmarked cars and taken to El Chipote, an infamous prison documented by human rights groups as being a state-run torture site. A warning... This next bit includes descriptions of violence. They were hitting me in the head, in the stomach, in the legs, and they said, we're going to kill you, motherfucker. You're never going to get out. <clears throat> no, now we got you. Now we got you. They stripped me naked. There's some things that um, they did to me that uh, I would like. I will, the, my wife didn't even know that I did to me because I don't feel like I don't want to tell her. They do all uh, horrible things over there. They, they put uh, electric shocks to your body. They put a, a, I don't know if you know what, a, what a, a police stick they used to beat you up. They introduce that into your anal cavity, uh, so make sure they make you talk. He was held for two days. Not long after they released him, Jessica went to a protest that was broken up by police. Officers kicked her in the stomach and hit her with the butt of a gun. She was pregnant. She lost the baby. Late last year, they realized they couldn't stay anymore. They needed to escape, and their plan was to go to the U.S. And they had a good reason to think they would be welcomed there. Jessica and Moises' brand of activism? It was championed by Republicans, including the Trump administration, for its defiance of a left-wing autocrat. They were called freedom fighters. We stand with you, Republican senators said in statements and tweets. In 2018, Ted Cruz gave a whole speech about U.S. support for Nicaraguan activists like them. To the people of Nicaragua, the American people stand with you. 
in your fight for freedom and for the rule of law. To the half million protesters who risked your lives, I say thank you. Thank you for your courage. And remember, truth has power. That support, it's part of what made their asylum case seem winnable because it fell under the category of political persecution. It was one sliver of the asylum system left intact after years of dismantling. In all sorts of ways, getting asylum in the U.S. has become almost impossible. Asylum seekers are being turned away at the border, told, nope, we're closed. Cases are incredibly hard to win, even when they do get to the courts. But the Trump administration did leave at least one window cracked. One of the few categories of asylum seekers that it purported to accept. People who were threatened, tortured, jailed for their politics. Especially when their politics overlap with U.S. interests people like Moises and Jessica. Moises and Jessica were a perfect asylum case for another reason. Their persecution was documented and it was public. As activists, they had become famous. Their protests had been televised. They'd held nationally broadcast press conferences. People recognized them in the streets all the time. Even the State Department had tweeted about specific confrontations they'd had with the paramilitary. At any other time in recent U.S. history, they would likely have been admitted. But instead, they're in hiding. I wanted to understand why. I've been covering immigration for the last few years, and this to me felt like the last chapter in the disintegration of asylum. So I called Moises and Jessica in the attic to hear about their journey from start to finish, to learn what happened. In late 2019, they started to get ready. Moises studied the U.S. government website for the asylum requirements. He read about the importance of supporting your case with evidence, so he bought a black backpack and he filled it with all the evidence he could gather. Videos of their protests and press conferences, reports from the Human Rights Commission and the State Department, statements from the White House and the Republican senators. Moises also wrote a five-page declaration, a long essay enumerating every threat, every beating he'd received from the government. He included the names of his torturers. He'd read online that the details could help his family's asylum case, so he was as specific as possible. The backpack took on a kind of sacred role for them. It was their proof that they were deserving of the sliver of asylum that remained available in the U.S. Then Moises and Jessica talked to Camila, their eight-year-old daughter. Camila is outgoing, loves Legos and TikTok videos. They sat her down, and Moises described all the dangers they would face on their journey across the border. Camila told them she was ready to go. At 3 o'clock one morning, they left their house outside of Managua and headed 2,000 miles north. By early July, they were moving through the desert of northern Mexico. It was scorching, and COVID cases were spiking. Moises had gamed everything out. He wrapped some of his asylum evidence in plastic in case it got wet, and he picked where they would cross the border, Texas. Since we heard so many things about... Uh... The, the, the Texas um, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, which is a guy that always talk about the Nicaragua regime and everything, we thought, oh my God, we're a good place because we're in Texas, which he is from. During tough moments on the journey to the border, Moises and Jessica tried to convince Camila that the whole trip was a game. It'll get more fun, they said. Soon we'll be in Disney World. You'll eat a McDonald's hamburger. 
Camila played along at first, but by the time they got to the border, she was exhausted and scared. Jessica scouted out the Rio Grande. Neither she nor Camila could swim, so she nervously looked for the shallowest part. So, as we were walking into the river, it was as if fate had intervened. Because every time we took a step in the water, there was always a rock that we could see. That is, it was as if God had placed stones there so that we could walk and nothing would happen to us. The water never got that high. I don't even think it got above our knees. And so when we got to the other side, we saw the people from Border Patrol. Jessica felt a rush of relief. That's it, she thought. The hardest part is over. A Border Patrol agent got out of a truck. Moises had been planning for this moment, and he knew exactly what to do. And Moises speaks fluent English, which is incredibly unusual for an asylum seeker. He took off his backpack, and he spread out the pile of evidence supporting his asylum claim. I, I say right away, we're from Nicaragua. We want to apply for asylum. We're seeking political asylum. Here are these, including we have our passports, and they took notes and everything. The Border Patrol separated Moises from Jessica and Camila. They took his bag with all the evidence in it. For 12 days, they were detained in small, crowded tents. They were just sitting on the ground, waiting, in the same clothes they'd worn on the trip north. When we got there, we were wet. When we crossed the river, our shoes and our pants got wet, and they did dry off, but they dried off on our bodies. And the shoes gave me like a fungus on my feet because I didn't take them off. When we got there, we couldn't bathe. Our clothes were itching us so much, my underwear especially. Moises kept repeating himself to janitors, guards, anyone. When can we apply for asylum, he asked. Where is my backpack? Finally, some guards came to get them. The guards said, everyone get your stuff. We're taking you on a bus. They handed Moises his backpack. It seemed to Jessica like they were about to be released and allowed to apply for asylum. We were all happy. We were all hugging each other because the rumor was that when that bus arrived, it was going to take us to wherever we were going to be, like Miami or wherever the people meeting you were. And so we were happy because we thought that this entire bitter journey was going to come to an end. She looked to Moises to see if he was also feeling hopeful. But Moises was more skeptical, and Jessica noticed. The U.S., it turns out, had used coronavirus as an excuse to shutter what was left of the U.S. asylum system. In March, the Centers for Disease Control wrote an order saying that asylum seekers could be expelled because they pose a risk to public health during the pandemic. It later turned out that the order was conceived of by immigration officials at the White House, not medical experts. And even though Moises, Jessica, and Camila tested negative for coronavirus while in custody, they could be deported. But they didn't know that. They were kept in an information black hole for a few days and then put in a van. No one would tell them where they were going. At, w- at what point do you realize that, that the van's going to the airport? Um, when, when, after the, and the, when they stopped the first town and then continued the trip, uh, my wife uh, uh, told me that, look, there's some signs, street signs, is there the airport, Brownsville? Then, then we realized, oh, my God, we're going to the airport. Then we're going back to Nicaragua. Uh, well, I started thinking, it's my God, what am I going to do? They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna put me in jail again in Nicaragua. 
they're going to arrest me. Uh, they're going to shoot me in the head. They're going to disappear my, myself and my wife. They're going to send me to, to, another, to another chipote for, for the rest of my life. Uh, now they really make sure they're going to kill me. Bueno, Camila iba dormida, se durmió. Well, Camila was sleeping, and Moises was very nervous. I think it's one of the few times I've ever seen him cry. And it's really only a few times that he has, because I can tell you that I can count them on one hand and still have fingers left over. But that day, I did see him cry. And he was crying a lot, because obviously he was very scared. And when you saw Moises crying, what did you say? Did you say anything? Not really. I didn't say anything. I just looked at him and he told me, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? I'm scared that they're going to take me to the Chipote. And I didn't say anything. I kept quiet because I also thought that that was going to happen. So I couldn't tell him that that wasn't going to happen, when deep down I felt that it would. Moises and Jessica first tried not to believe what was happening. In all of their planning, they'd never considered that this could happen. Never before, in the modern history of the U.S. asylum system, has the U.S. sent political dissidents back to the country they fled without first allowing them to open asylum applications. Yet there they were, being sent back to Nicaragua, delivered into the hands of their torturers. Police would be waiting for them at the airport. And they weren't alone. Dozens of Nicaraguan asylum seekers were herded onto a charter plane, destined for a country whose treatment of political prisoners, the State Department said, demonstrates the regime's utter disregard for human life and democratic freedoms. Not only is it a break from U.S. policy going back decades, it's also a clear violation of international refugee law. I talked to people at the UN, and they were like, yeah, this is definitely illegal. U.S. Customs and Border Protection did not respond to my request for comment. They claim that people seeking asylum still receive credible fear interviews, though I didn't find any evidence to support that. The pilot comes on the intercom and calmly tells people to put their seatbelts on, like it's a normal flight. Meanwhile, the passengers are freaking out. They're still not completely sure where they're going. Um, well, this is this is the thing when we, we took off. The, the 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 pilot said, uh, "Well, the time the time expected to Nicaragua is three hours, something like that." And I say, "Oh my God!" Then we uh, now we really going back. You know, it's like you feel uh, you feel like insecure, and you feel like there's nothing I can do, man. I cannot jump from the plane. The passengers were whispering to each other. If they take me straight to prison, call my mom, one man said. Whoever disappears, we should all assume he's in Chipote, said another. Moises recognized some of the other activists. He told me and my producer, Nadia Raymond, about it. And like, everybody was in shackles. Everybody was in handcuffs. We're, we're pretty, pretty sure this, oh man, this is a, this is, I remember like this movie, Con Air. Everybody <laughs> was going in, in the plane. Everybody was fighting with the officers. They, about, uh, I don't want to go back to Nicaragua. I don't want to be sent to Nicaragua. Wait, and, people, are, well, people are saying that on the plane? Yeah. 
Camila venía al lado de la ventana, Moisés al lado del pasillo en el centro. Camila was sitting beside the window, Moisés beside the aisle, and I was in the middle because I'm afraid of flying. But I was so scared from the uncertainty, from not knowing what was awaiting us, that I wasn't even scared of flying. I told Moisés that I couldn't even feel what the pilot was doing. I didn't even feel like I was flying on an airplane. No sentía ni siquiera que venía en un avión. While they're midair, Moisés realizes something. The backpack. This bag full of evidence, he's about to land with it, and the police are going to see it. He can't think about anything else. The U.S. immigration agents put it with the checked luggage, so it was somewhere in the belly of the plane. Moisés couldn't even hold it, couldn't look at what was inside, and come up with a plan. If the police find it, they'll see that he listed the names of specific torturers and what they did to him. Maybe they would decide to kill him just for that. Maybe they rape his daughter, he thinks. His mind is spiraling out of control. Next to him, Jessica is busy trying to soothe Camila, feeding her Doritos. When we left, that backpack for me was like the the hope that I had so I can make it to the U.S. and apply for asylum. It was like my 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 saver, my my ticket to, to freedom. And when I was coming back to Nicaragua, it was the... The opposite. I was thinking, oh my God, that is the reason why they're gonna they're gonna shoot me or they're gonna kill me. Because that's where I have all the evidence and the proof that I had. So the same backpack that's gonna take me to freedom is the one that is gonna kill me right now. When the plane lands, Moises looks out the window at the fleet of Nicaraguan soldiers and police waiting for them. Everyone gets in line, walking down the steps of the plane. Moises and Jessica and all of the others are led into a garage-like office where the government is conducting interrogations. They're patted down. Their government IDs are confiscated. The whole time, Moises is thinking about his backpack. One officer snapped pictures of them. Another addressed them by name and asked what they were doing in the U.S. and why they were deported. Moises tried to avoid answering, They got me in Texas, he said, shrugging it off. They're led to another area full of police. Jessica and Camila walk hand in hand, but Moises' eyes dart around, frantically searching for some sign of his backpack. Finally, he sees the luggage cart pull up, and there it is. Moises grabs his backpack and turns to face the wall of a building. It's the closest he can get to hiding. He reaches into the backpack and feels for the pages. He finds his statement, the document that outlines in explicit detail everything that happened to them. And I knew that the first paper that I touched, I knew it was the statement. Mm-hmm. So when I noticed that they were not looking at me, I grab it and I put it like in a, in a fist, in my, inside my fist. Then after that, I did it like I was wiping my, my face with the paper, like I was sweating because it was a lot, of, it was very hot when I got there. So I was sweating a lot. So what I did is I made them think that I was using the paper to clean my, my sweat. Then when they were not looking, I was going to throw in the trash can, actually. I thought about it. But I said, oh, my God, I'm not going to throw in the trash can. They might see me or they might find it. You know, so what I did is the first thing that I thought was just going to start eating it, like, real fast. Oh, my God. You know, and like, it, like it, was, it was, like, wet because of the sweat, and so it was easy to swallow. Wait, so how, how many pages did you actually eat? There were five pages. How did you how did you eat five pages of paper? 
I don't know, man. I think it was real scary. I just started swallowing. My wife says that I have a big mouth. I think that helped. So when I, when I realized, I, I like in a couple of seconds, I really had everything choking to my throat. So I started swallowing. What did the What did the paper taste like? Well, because of because of the sweat, it was very very salty. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> As they walked through the crowd of police, he kept waiting for them to take him away. He kept waiting for them to open his bag. They never did. Instead, the police drove Moises, Jessica, and Camila to Jessica's mom's house in a patrol truck. When they got there, the police started taking more photos, like they were scouting a crime scene. So when we got out, Camila was very skinny. Since we left, she had lost weight. So my mom didn't recognize her. When she saw the three of us, she didn't even recognize us. We got out of the van, and they said, we're going to hand over your family members now, and we'd like to take a picture so that there's evidence that the people who were deported were handed to their family members. This is how Nicaragua's parapolice often work. They make note of where you live, and when they want to, they go after you. Moises and Jessica had to figure out what to do next. After a few days, they noticed that the police were circling the house. The police called at random and asked about Camila. Staying at a known address was too dangerous. They didn't think the police would hurt Camila, but what if they came for Moises or Jessica while Camila was there? She could be swept up in the violence. So Moises and Jessica relocated to the attic of a safe house and left Camila. They told her, we'll see you soon, but truthfully, they had no idea when. It was brutal to say goodbye, but what was the alternative, they thought? If Camila was attacked on their behalf, that would be much worse. Jessica cried when she said goodbye. That was about two months ago. She's cried most days since. I still do. I still feel guilty. We're in hiding. I can't always see my daughter. And I can't keep every promise that I made. I feel like I failed as a mother. Their days are now about hiding. They spent weeks in the attic, sleeping on the floor. Now they're a floor below, in a tiny, mostly empty bedroom. But they're still just as afraid of being found. The landlord warns them when someone is downstairs so they can remain extra quiet. When one of them drops something or accidentally makes a loud noise, they're like, did anyone hear that? Is that the thing that's going to give us away? Sometimes Jessica wakes up and for an instant has no idea where she is. She has to remind herself, I'm back in Nicaragua. I'm in hiding in my own country. They're back where they were a year ago, asking the same questions. Should we leave? And when? This time, the answers are harder to agree on. Sometimes we have very intense arguments, because right now we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long things are going to be like this. It's like being in jail without the torture. But I think there is torture psychologically, emotionally, because you can't be near the people you love. How many times a day do you think about what you're going to do, about your plans for what to do next? 
Hasta hace unos días, creo que la de, I think up until a few days ago, it was up to 20 hours a day, but I've decided that I need to wait. One day this month, Moises made it very clear that the door was closed, that we just needed to wait for the door to open, that we just needed to have patience because I don't know what else we can do. We can't think about leaving if we don't have the economic means, but we can't think about staying here because I don't know how much longer we can. Most of the people arriving at the U.S. border these days know that the asylum system has been whittled away. Like Moises and Jessica, they knew it wasn't going to be easy, that it could take years. But they believed in their case, that pile of papers in Moises' backpack. Anyone who saw them would be convinced, they thought. What they didn't believe, and why would they, was that no one would even look, and that the backpack would end up back in a safe house next to Moises' head when he sleeps. Everything's still inside, the way it was when they left for the first time. Kevin Seif is the Mexico and Central America Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. A version of this story appeared in The Washington Post and in their daily podcast, Post Reports. Coming up... People who work in a field where it is really hard to find a good, steady job. These people find one, and then the only problem is they have to actually come in and do the job every day exactly the way they did it the day before. And I mean, like, exactly the way they did it. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, The Walls Close In, stories of people trapped in small spaces and what that's like. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2, music of the night after 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 night. We now turn to people who made a choice, a conscious choice, to stick themselves into a cramped, uncomfortable space for years inside a theater. You know, the old saying, hell is other people, actually comes from the theater, comes from a play, No Exit. That play was not written by a member of a theater orchestra. But Jay Caspian Kang has this story about how many musicians in theatrical orchestras might understand the sentiment. Nick Gimo moved to New York in 2006 to try to make it as a musician. He had just finished up college and had all these dreams of playing the trumpet for a living. But it was a struggle. There just aren't many jobs for trumpet players anymore, so he mostly waited by the phone for gigs. Korean megachurch services, experimental plays, and the occasional substitute job with Mary Poppins on Broadway. And then a spot opened up at his favorite show. This might be TMI, but I remember I was in my apartment. I was on the toilet, and (laughs) (laughs) I got a phone call, and I didn't recognize the number. And I listened to the voicemail saying, hi, this is Kristen, and freaked out. This was one of the conductors for Phantom of the Opera. She offered him a job playing shows six days a week and twice on Thursdays and Saturdays. I'm not sure. I probably even let her finish her sentence. You know, yes, I'm very interested, <laughs> very interested and available. It was life-changing, really. Did you feel like you had, like, won the lottery? Oh, yes. Actually, I remember the next day I had to go grocery shopping. And I remember, <laughs> I remember buying <laughs> coconut water. I don't know why. That was, like, my treat because I always wanted to buy coconut water, but... 
it was always like too much of a, it was like, you know what, this is, I just don't need to spend. And I remember buying coconut water and feeling like such a badass. (laughs) (laughs) And I just felt like I can buy anything here. It wasn't just a steady income Nick was excited about. Phantom of the Opera was a show Nick had loved since he was 11 years old. He had just started playing the trumpet and would lay on his living room floor listening to the music of the night. You know it. Slowly, gently, night unfurls its splendor. That call changed his life. He had finally arrived. Phantom on Broadway. On his first day, Nick entered the majestic theater on 46th and 8th Avenue. He walked through a back alley, past a giant tub of dry ice, down a flight of stairs, into a locker room where he changed into all black. He then headed into the pit to play the music he had loved as a child. He had his own seat there now, in a music stand. So he played the first show, next day he went back and played it again, and then again. His brain started to adjust to playing the same show eight times a week. And then he started to notice, it wasn't just the music that repeated itself. You know, I'm seeing the same actors at the exact same time, and the same musicians at the exact same time, and seeing the same people in the bathroom at the exact same time. <laughs> every, every time one of the dancers comes through to put her wig on, she says to one of the other dancers, um, good job, Erica. Like, every single day, it's very Groundhog Day. At first, this was funny, almost charming. Nick was 30 and the youngest person in the pit, not by a few years, but by a few decades. He'd never been in a situation like this where everyone seemed so locked into routine. His colleagues would sit down in their chairs at the exact same minute every day. There was the cellist who would say, marvelous, every time Nick asked him how he was doing. There was the first horn player who would pull out a stopwatch every single night to time how long the second horn player held a note in one of the songs. Some days it would be 17 seconds, other days 16.2. You definitely start to notice People are talking about each other and complaining about, you know, the same people are late every single week. You know, if you bump into a standby accident, you'll get a, like a, what the f*** are you doing kind of look. Like, take a deep breath, (laughs) you know, like. (sighs) What what is it like being the, the, the youngest guy there, the young guy? Basically, I'm not as jaded <laughs> as the rest of them. <laughs> you know, if I say anything that's not like, oh, you know, sucks to be here, <laughs> then they're like, no, oh, you haven't been here long enough. You're still new, you're still new. You know, people kind of walk in there like, oh, okay, I can't do this again. And some of it's just in their body language, the way they walk in the door, like they're kind of trudging in, you know. Or when someone says, do I have to do this tonight? Phantom of the Opera opened on Broadway in January 1988. It was an instant hit. Everyone who has seen this musical comes away enchanted. The show is virtually guaranteed to run well into the next decade. It did. And then another decade, and another. The musicians of the pit signed contracts with a provision which guaranteed their jobs until the show shut down. They expected two, maybe three years, but the show kept going as three years turned into five years, which then turned into 32. That's over 13,000 performances. Phantom is now the longest-running show in the history of Broadway. There's almost a feeling, I think, of nausea, that you have to do it again, and you have to do it again. That's Melanie Feld, an oboist who's been in the pit for 28 years now. 
I don't know how to describe it, a physical sensation that I get of literally that I'm jumping out of my skin. Like my, it's a leg thing. I can't stay in my skin, I'm going crazy. Oh no, that thing is happening. I first heard about the pit at Phantom through a friend whose wife had recently subbed in the violin section. She described what she had seen as a horror show, like waiting for Guffman, but 30 hard years down the line. I couldn't quite get it out of my head. It's one of the first things people ask. How can you possibly stay sane and play the same music every night? Pete Wright has been playing Phantom since opening night. He's the French horn player who times the notes on a stopwatch every night. You know, there is something in that where you, I would look at the music sometimes and I, it would just look, literally look like shapes. I would just see like, like circles and lines and dots and I would have no idea. I wouldn't even know what page I was on. It's like a disassociative feeling almost like. How, it's sort of like you... hearing yourself speak and you don't, and you aren't sure it's English. <laughs> well, that is, I don't think that's ever happened to me, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the funny thing is you see someone else do it and you immediately know what's going on with them. What, what does their face look like? Oh, they're just like, they just, it's as if they don't even know where they are. They're like waking up in another room. It's like, what happened? Where am I? (laughs) What day is it? What week is it? (laughs) When I started talking to the pit musicians a couple years ago, I wanted to know how they found meaning in the mundane and inevitable repetitions of life. In lots of jobs, people do the same thing every day, but nothing quite like this. You're hearing the exact same lines from the stage, playing the exact same notes for the same songs, Even the guy sitting next to you breathes in the exact same rhythm. Every day, the Phantom kisses Christine for the first time, and the same chandelier comes crashing down in the same spot on the stage. I assume the orchestra members were like Zen archers who pull back the same bow with the same motion until they die. I talked to a trumpet player named Lowell Hershey. Lowell's been at the show since day one, and everyone says he's the sanest person in the pit and it kind of drives you nuts for the first few weeks. And then after that, your mind deals with it and just flushes it out. So when you're not there, you, you don't think about it. Do you know the words to the songs that you're playing? Uh, no, <laughs> not, not entirely. Where in the world? Think where, of me yeah. fondly, yeah. whatever. I mean, I remember one, one time after the show had been running for a while, it, somebody asked me to play a little bit of a tune from the show, and I couldn't even do it. I couldn't even think of one. <laughs> I had submerged it so much. So like your, your brain has like basically just re- yeah, yeah, rejected like, being right. cognizant that the music is going on. I think that's typical of people who do shows. What do you think the right type of personality is that can handle this job? I'm descended from a long line of serfs and peons, you know, people who are used to laboring in the fields for for hardly any money and and are relatively happy with that. The Phantom players aren't exactly serfs. They're well-paid, they play a beloved show, and they get to play in small orchestras on the side. But these are highly trained musicians who went to the fanciest music schools in the world. Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted the best of the best for Phantom, which means the pit will always sound good, though it also creates some creative and spiritual problems for the players who have to get through the score night after night after night. I'm a violin operator. <laughs> Is that how you describe that? That's, that's how I describe it. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's very technical. 
I have I have no emotional connection with it. That's a violinist named Kurt Kobel. He's a composer. His dream was always to write scores for horror films. He's now been at Phantom for 22 years, long enough to see three people in a section die. When I'm playing the show, nobody's interested in my creative input. I've often compared it to working in a hospice. You know, it's just, we just keep the show alive as long as we can. So here they all are, in this weird social experiment, trapped together for decades, 27 musicians crammed into this tiny space. A trumpet player told me it's like playing in a submarine. I've been down there, and you can barely turn around without knocking into something. In the pit, you notice everything. The way your neighbor blows out a spit valve, the way someone brags about their kids, the smell of someone's perfume. Every little annoyance, every perceived slight, accumulates. One of my favorite stories, which should drive anyone who has ever played in a band crazy. There's this bassoon player who has sat next to the same clarinet player since 1988. She's convinced he plays half a note flat on every note he's ever played. He denies this. The person I talked to the most in the pit was Melanie, the oboist. She's one of the rare people you meet who has no real filter. So I was complaining about something which I imagine was that it was really cold, it's always really cold, and then someone else from the orchestra said, I'm just so tired of the sound of your voice. You know, and I'm tired of the sound of my voice too, so I, I kind of sympathize with her. Then there was a violinist who got mad at me because I said I used Roundup in my garden. She said, and she wouldn't speak to me for like, I don't know, weeks. During most of our talks, Melanie was making reads. It's an extraordinarily meticulous process. There's all sorts of medieval-looking tools and tiny bits of wood everywhere. Oboists are the most optimistic people in the world because every time they make a read, they think that it might work. They usually don't, but anyway. This part, I, oh no, I'm skipping the most important part. You need to pick your color of thread. And it just makes all the difference, and I never know what color to pick. But this is the only fun that I have, so. that god-awful noise. Melanie studied at Juilliard. She dreamed of being the principal oboist in the Metropolitan Opera or the Philharmonic, but she kept bombing her auditions. Her nerves got the best of her every time she was up for a big seat. And then life and bills intervened. Phantom in that way is a very good job, in a field where there aren't a lot of good jobs anymore. It put Melanie's kids through college, paid her mortgage, and provided security while the music industry collapsed around her. But at the end of 30 years sitting just inches away from your coworkers, you lose all sense of proportion. Your enemies turn into monsters. For Melanie, the monster in the pit was always a trumpet player named Francis Bonney. Everything he did drove Melanie nuts, from the black biking shorts he wore in the pit to always eating his dinner in the locker room with his back turned to her. Francis was the miserable son of a bitch. And at a certain point, he started wearing, like he put this black sh like shade on the side of his glasses. And he's wearing those things because he doesn't want to see me, right? That's why he's wearing, I really truly believe this. I wanted to run this all by Francis. It just seemed so unreasonable. Francis was the only person I had talked to who had actually escaped from the pit. He got in a truck and drove out to the middle of nowhere in Colorado. He says he's much happier now. You spoke with Melanie. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, we did. I understand that you two did not have the best relationship. <laughs> One of the things that she told us was that that you, you basically made an eye patch so that you wouldn't have to look at her. Is is this a true story that she's telling us? I did do that at some point, but that wasn't just because of Melanie. Uh, she's taking it too personally. It was actually anybody that was on my right. <laughs> <laughs> She told us for a long time that you sat in the locker room and that you would turn your back to everybody because you didn't want to look at them. Yeah, yeah, I was in the <laughs> locker room. I came there, I ate my dinner, looked at the white wall, went in, played the show, and then left the theater, left the premises as fast as I could, and um, it worked beautifully. Can you compare the relationships that you have with other relationships? It's family. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spouse you can't stand and uh, putting up with people that you just don't want to hear their voice again mm. you sit there thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours this is like a quarter of a lifetime the musicians in the pit don't play the whole time which means there are thousands of hours where they're not actually doing anything and during those rests they read books spy thrillers and mysteries and do the crossword with their neighbors a trumpet player has taught himself three languages. Another musician ran a woodshop business on his laptop during the show. And socially, it's a bit like middle school. There are the loners, the jocks, and the French horns. They're like the boys in the back of the bus. They bring in fart machines and run the same practical jokes over and over. Sometimes they even mess with the audience. The front row is right up against the pit, so close that their feet sometimes dangle next to the musicians' heads. Occasionally, one of the French horn players would take out a bottle of whiteout and write little messages on the soles of the audience's shoes. Those guys, they're sitting right behind me. They're always chattering and laughing. I, being me, if I play badly, I think, oh, God, they're saying how terrible I am. Oh, God, I don't want to humiliate myself. This, more than anything, Melanie told me, is what makes her want to sound good every night. She's worried the French horn guys will make fun of her. I'm not playing for the audience because the audience doesn't. And so I'm playing for those French horn players. I do want to say um, one of the compliments I've gotten over the years is, um, how do you still play so well when you've just been doing Phantom for all those years? I say, it's a choice that I've made. My choice is to play this music like it's any other music that I play and, and make it beautiful. Can you just play something from Phantom? Well, I can play the really hard one. And if it's really bad, though, I beg you not to. Nobody is in the Phantom Pit right now. The show temporarily closed in March because of COVID-19. The Unstoppable show had finally been put on pause. I recently checked in with Melanie again. She wasn't doing very well. Her mother had died in a nursing home in New Jersey, presumed COVID positive. She wasn't getting paid by the show anymore. And she missed Phantom. This was surprising to me. Melanie and all the other musicians had told me about their fantasies of finally leaving the show. And I had believed them. But now that it had actually happened, she missed a routine. You know, Phantom, I missed the, the comradeship. You know, the repetition of the silly jokes and watching everyone eat, and I don't know, the routine. I kind of like routine in my life. This, of course, is the opposite of what she'd said in the past, before COVID. It, it was always easy to complain that it was boring. 
and to complain about driving into the city and wasting all that time in the car and, you know, playing the same music and going home again. And, and I just thought, I knew I was lucky back then, but it becomes very real now. I mean, what can I say? Now I really know what it's like not having this job. You know, I, it's just so much fun to complain about things that don't matter. Oh, the women in the bathroom, they were just always talking about their expensive hair and makeup. And I, I miss the women in the bathroom. <laughs> and I, yeah, I'd be happy to complain about that again. Before the pandemic, every time I talked to Melanie, I would ask how she was doing. Her answer always depended on parking. It's hard to park in Midtown Manhattan. A good parking spot was a good day. A bad parking spot was a bad day. This is how she made sense of her life. I think about this all the time. Most of our lives are spent finding parking for the job we don't want to do. Melanie's not alone in that. And after any number of years, those routines accumulate, and that's more or less your life. Of all the people I talked to in the pit, one musician dealt with the mundane and inevitable repetition of life in a way that really stuck with me. For the past two decades in the pit, Kurt, the musician who described himself as a violin operator, has been dreaming up the most elaborate and metaphorically perfect coping mechanism. It's a band made up entirely of automatons. I met these robot musicians in a warehouse in Yonkers. The Pan Band. The PAM band stands for Partially Artificial Musicians. Kurt's automatons are made up of scraps of metal and string all wired up to a soundboard that Kurt can program to create whatever sounds he wants. There's Magnus, an electrochord organ, Krieg, the bass guitar, and then there's Rosie, the theremin. This is Jack, a solid body electric violin using the exoskeleton design. This is what helps uh, alleviate the boredom of the redundancy of Phantom, because I'm constantly thinking about this project and how I can improve the automation and the kind of music that I would like to create. (laughs) Why did you decide to do this? Uh, If I ever see a therapist, maybe they will help me understand this. Pretend I'm a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Like, was there part of it where you're like, man, I am playing in this orchestra. I'm not, you know, it's not the expressiveness that I want. I also kind of feel like an automaton, you know, and maybe I'll just make an automaton as a violinist. Yeah, I mean, I I can see exploring that. Am I looking for some kind of, soul healing from this dehumanization of being in a violent section? Possibly. (laughs) I asked Kurt if the Pan Band could play the music of the night or All I Ask of You or any of the Phantom classics. He wasn't into that at all. This band was not designed to play Andrew Lloyd Webber. But something inside him just couldn't get away from Phantom of the Opera. Back when he was sitting in the pit, he'd composed, just in his head, both the prequel and the sequel to Phantom, both which involve Indiana Jones-type characters. 
and years ago he got a copy of the 1925 silent film version of Phantom and wrote an entire score. He wanted to play it for me. He turned off the lights in the warehouse and projected the film onto the wall. The Pam Band started to play. The score features him, Kurt, as the solo violinist and the star of the show. The automatons all play the same thing, but Kurt always improvises. None of his shows are ever the same. Jake Aspian Kang, he's making a documentary about the Phantom Pit and his co-host of the podcast, Time to Say Goodbye. Our program is produced today by Aviva de Kornfeld. People who put our program together today include Bim Adewunmi, Anna Baker, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Nor Gill, Damian Grafe, Hannah Joffrey Walt, Miki Meek, Catherine Raimondo, Stone Nelson, Nadia Raymond, Robin Semyon, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sutala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Senior editor David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to our interpreter, Gabriela Munoz, also David Lai, Grace Paradise, Isabel Castro, Gleb McCaleb, Cameron Dennis, Carissa Henderson, Alex Newman, and Jean Hannah Edelstein. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. Plus there's videos, there's lists of favorite programs, there's all kinds of other stuff there. Again, the website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he and I were talking the other day, and he let slip. He hasn't been listening to our program for weeks. I was like, what? Totally confronted him about it. And I don't know. I guess he had a good reason. <sighs> Just so tired of the sound of your voice. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week. I told Tori, I get it. You know, and I'm tired of the sound of my voice, too. So I, I kind of sympathize Open the door, baby, walk right on in, baby, open the door, come on, walk right on.